very happy to welcome everyone to this first uh, session of the afternoon uh, sessions. And this one is on authors, texts, and Islamic scholarship. I'm not going to take very much time to introduce the speakers to allow the most time for them to speak and then to have discussion. There's longer de descriptions of each of them. Let me just introduce their names and where they're at, uh, and then a little bit about the format. So first speaker will be Mauro Nobili, who is the assistant professor of history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Then Noah Solomon, who is an associate professor of religion at Carleton College. And then Oludamini Ogunayike, who is an assistant professor of religion at the College of William and Mary. And then finally, the last speaker will be Farah El-Sharif, who is a PhD student here at Harvard University. Each of the speakers will speak for 20 minutes, and then we'll have time for a common uh, question and answer period and also uh, discussion. So with that, please join me in welcoming Moral Nobly. Hello, good afternoon. I have the complicated task to keep you alive and awake <laughs> after lunch. So believe me, I'll do my best. I want to start, as usual, thank you, thank, thanking Professor Usman Khan uh, and Matthew for making this possible and for allowing me to talk in this prestigious uh, venue. So my presentation is titled The 19th Century Political Project, Noho Bontair Tariq Al-Fattash. So for those of you who are familiar with West Africa, the title already sounds a little bit strange because everybody knows that the Tariq Al-Fattash uh, allegedly was written 16th, 17th century by somebody else. But my point is that this is not true. So the aim of today's presentation uh, is to start introducing what we can call uh, the Tariq al-Fattah studies, uh, in this echoing uh, the idea of Tombuktu studies that uh, Professor Khan has in his uh, latest book, Beyond Tombuktu. And then I will uh, locate myself in this scholarship, uh, contributing by saying that the Tariq al-Fattah is actually a 19th century political uh, project uh, in support of the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobbo, the caliph of Hamdallahi, that we, uh, about whom we heard already something today in the morning. When I sent an article uh, a couple of years ago, somebody sent me back uh, a comment saying that uh, my article was basically trying to tackle problems in one year, well, 100 years of misunderstanding of the Tariq al-Fattah. So this misunderstanding actually starts with the conquest of Tombouctou. So late 1893, Tombouctou was taken over by the French. And almost immediately after that, Le Figaro, very famous French newspaper, sent this guy, Félix Dubois, to document uh, Tombouctou. He published this article, Le Figaro Tombouctou. But most important is very famous book, Tombouctou la Mysterieuse. It is the first time, actually, that a European uh, would extensively comment uh, on uh, the length, I mean, on the big um, libraries of Tombouctou scholars, uh, of course, using uh, racist and outdated uh, terminology. But I really like this quote uh, of Dubois, who says that uh, learned doctors of Tombouctou were, to use an expression which might appear strange when applied to Negroes, bibliophiles. The libraries of Tombouctou might be said to have included almost the whole of the Arabian literature. But the very book that attracted Dubois' atten uh, attention 
was the Tariq al-Fattash, uh, the courtier from the Tariq al-Fattash, uh, that, uh, in fact, Dubois couldn't uh, obtain, uh, and he called him uh, the phantom book uh, of the Sudan. But, in a way, Dubois was so important because he was the first uh, who sketched the main uh, understanding of the chronicle uh, that for 100 years have been repeated by scholars. Meaning that the Tariq al-Fattash was a, a chronicle originally written in the 16th, some, maybe, according to somebody, 17th century, that tells the story of the Middle Niger up to the 16th, 17th century, which has been slightly modified in the 19th century. So from Dubois, there we have a long list of scholars who contributed to the topic, including the famous Orientalist Octave Houdas and Marcel de la Fosse, who edited a very problematic version of the text, and unfortunately the new edition of the Tariq al-Fattash by a team of scholars led by Abdul Qadri Maiga in Tombouctou doesn't really fix the problem of these editions. Then we have several other scholars, such like John Anwick, Nehemiah Levzion, Madina Lital, etc., who contributed to the topic. But they more or less followed in the uh, footsteps by basically saying that the Tariq al-Fattash was an original old chronicle polluted by later uh, accretions. Okay, and I have this quote that I really find fitting here by Augustine Hall, uh, who says that this approach is actually in line, uh, and I quote, uh, um, sorry, yeah, with the scholarship on West African written sources, I quote, characterized by a heavy reliance on textual evidence, which is studied following, above all, a philological approach. The approach aims to retrieve the original or archetypal frame of historical documents, which are therefore considered to have been corrupted by lengthy series of interpolation and or copies mistakes. In doing so, inconsistencies and contradictions discovered are relegated to the status of accident in the chain of transmission of historical information. But as a historian, and as many historians here, we know, well, we know a very famous statement by you know, Mark Bloch, and I quote it again, apology, who, who says that to establish the fact of a forgery is not enough. It is further necessary to discover its motivation. Above all, Bloch continues, a fraud is in its way a piece of evidence, merely to prove that the famous structure of Charlemagne to the, chair, uh, the church of Aix-la-Chapelle is not authentic, is to avoid an error, but not to acquire knowledge. On the other hand, should we succeed in proving that the forgery was committed by the followers of Frederick Barbarossa, and that it was designed to implement dreams of imperial grandeur, we open new vistas upon the vast perspectives of history. So basically, what I'm doing with the Tarif al-Fattah is not looking for a romantic original. I don't really care about the original. What I'm looking for is the forgery. So what is this 19th century layer of writing in the Tariq al-Fattash that we need to understand? What does it tell us about the history of 19th century West Africa? All these so-called forged parts point to the Caliphate of Andalahi and to Ahmed Lobo. The Caliphate of Andalahi, for those who are not familiar with the region, is an early 19th century Islamic state in the middle Niger, more or less in what is contemporary central Mali. But what is the starting point of this research? The starting point is in the actual edition 
by De La Fosse and Houdas uh, 1913, uh, that is a pastiche, is a disaster. Because by a closer analysis, uh, Houdas and De La Fosse actually conflated two different texts. One embodied in two of the three manuscripts they use, that is an incomplete 17th century chronicle, that for a lack of a better title, and following on Nehemiah Lepzion's uh, ideas, uh, I call the Tariq ibn al-Muhtar, uh, the only thing we know is the name of the author, the son of al-Muhtar, and what I call the Tariq al-Fatash, the 19th century apocryphal work. So by taking out of the edition only the sections that belong to manuscript C, we actually have a new text, the real Tariq al-Fatash, the real 19th century Tariq al-Fatash. I don't really have all the time here to explain you philologically how we can split these two texts. But I have a smoking gun here that is a manuscript that I found in Paris in the De Gironco collection, which is quite explicit. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Ada tariq lil-fakir Nuh ibn Tair ibn Musa talmid Sheikh Sidi al-Mukhtar al-Kunti wa sammaituhu tariq al-Fattash. This is the chronicle by Nuh ibn Tair, and I call it Tariq al-Fattash. And then it goes on and on and on with many of the things that we know from the edited edition. Then last, last night when I first came here, I was kind of surprised that the guy who was in possession of these manuscripts is on the poster of today's conference. <laughs> I don't know if you picked it up from the, my first book or whatever, but this guy no, used no, to... We have, that, we have dreams of what... <laughs> yeah, we, we heard it this morning, yeah. <laughs> It is definitely needed. So this guy, Yusuf bin al-Khalil, was a Songhai scholar active in the early 1910s in what is today's Niger. Anyway, let's go back to the main topic. If we take the Tariq al-Fattash as a 19th century construction, we mainly focus on what is a rhetorical tool that goes throughout the narrative that is a prophecy. Everybody knows this prophecy, if, if you're familiar with West African uh, historiography. It is a prophecy that is um, foretold um, to the famous Askelaj Muhammad, the king of Songhai, who went to the pilgrimage at the end of the 15th century and was foretold four times uh, the arrival of Ahmed Lopo. So in the, in the 15th century, it's foretold the arrival of Ahmed Lopo in the 19th century by several people. There is a fictional Sharif of Mecca, Jalal al-Din al-Suyuti, Al-Marili, and even the king of the jinns, Shamharush. All these very authoritative uh, personalities agree that Ahmed Lobbo is the inheritor of Askelaji Muhammad. And the identification is not explicit, but I would say it's almost explicit. If we go and read the details about how was this <coughs> you know, foretold caliph, in the Tariq al-Fattash, we read that his name will be Ahmed, will be the son of Muhammad, will be from the Sangare Fulani tribe. His power would emerge at the beginning of the 13th century of Ijra in the region of Sebera. What do we know about Ahmed Lobbo? Ahmed was Ibn Muhammad. He was of the Sangare Fulani tribe, that is a subgroup of the Bari group. The caliphate of Handalai emerged in Sebera, between the Bani and the Niger, so in central Mali, when at the beginning of the 19th century, that correspond to the 13th century of Hijra. So you can see that the identification of the uh, prophesized caliphate with Ahmed Lobo is quite explicit. The point of this 
forgery, which I actually call a political project, not a forgery per se, is to construct a sophisticated, reliable legitimacy for somebody like Ahmed Lobbo, who emerges basically out of the blue. He was not part of the Muslim establishment of the time. He was not part uh, of the uh, you know, families that traditionally have been the repository of political power. And its legitimacy have been contested several times by people within the caliphate of Hamdallahi, like the famous revolt of Gelagio, that was a Fulani local leader. He would be sometimes in trouble with the powerful uh, Muslim family of the Kunta in Tombaktu, especially with one of the, its most representative, uh, Muhammad al-Kunti, who was quite you know, uh, strong against Ahmed Lobbo, especially because the Kunta were, commercing, were uh, tra trading in tobacco, and Ahmed Lobbo um, claimed that tobacco was haram. But also with the people of Sokoto. <coughs> the people of Sokoto didn't really like the emergence of a very powerful uh, state, basically a couple of hundred miles uh, to the west of Sokoto. So in front of all these attacks to the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobbo, the Tariq al-Fatash was produced as a literary tool that provided this legitimacy that was lacking to Ahmed Lobbo. Ahmed Lobbo is transformed in the Tariq al-Fatash always via this you know, meta-historical identification as inheritor of Askia Muhammad, as a sultan. Because Nuh ibn Tahir, the author of the Tariq al-Fatash, the real, according to my theory, author of the Tariq al-Fatash, borrows from the 17th century Tariq genre, a sort of teleological narrative uh, of secular rulers of West Africa that has been uh, wonderfully described by Paolo Farias in his path-breaking work, uh, the Arabic medieval inscriptions from the Republic of Mali. But of course, via the prophecy, Ahmed Lobbo becomes the inheritor of Askia Muhammad. And in this way, the apogee of this thousand years long tradition of secular ruler of West Africa. But when I use Sultan, I'm actually avoiding to use any kind of religious loaded term. But he was also a caliph. When I use caliph, in this case, on the contrary, I'm strongly, you know, identifying this second layer of legitimacy with Islam. A well-known hadith says that the religion, this re sorry, religion will remain upright until there will be 12 caliphs under whom the entire ummah unites. Scholars have always disagreed about uh, who are these caliphs, apart from the very first ones. So what happens in the Tariq al-Fatash? Nuhu makes authorities agreeing that uh, Askia Muhammad was the 11th of these caliphs, and of course, Ahmed Lobbo, inheritor of Askia Muhammad, will be the 12th. But that's not enough, because another well-known hadith talks about al-Mujaddid al-Din, the renewer of the faith. So God will send to this community at the turn of every century, someone who will restore the religion. So in the Tariq al-Fatash, Ahmed Lobbo also becomes Mujaddid, renewer of the faith. But now, let's be a little bit more concrete. Can we really imagine uh, people circulating uh, like hundreds of pages, uh, manuscripts, uh, and looking you know, between uh, the pages uh, for the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobo? It's unlikely. What really circulated uh, was actually a serious uh, 
of smaller documents, uh, sort of dispatch, that were circulated and read in public, uh, as we can see from the uh, colophon of some of these manuscripts. So messengers will go around and read aloud these proclamations, uh, in which we have basically the reference uh, to Ahmed Lobo as a legitimate uh, caliph of West Africa. This document is very famous. It's called Risala fi Zuhur al-Khalifa al-Thani Asher. And I think it's one of the most uh, popular and widespread documents uh, in West Africa. I find it in every manuscript library that I uh, ended up uh, taking a look at. But of course, there is one piece that is important, is to link back these claims uh, to the Tariq al-Fattash. And I mean, I'm quite excited about that, but I still find this sentence over here one of the best pieces of West African literature. Because we can read here, so if somebody asks me, what is the proof that he is the caliph? Go and look in the Tariq al-Fattash, and you'll see that my claims are correct. And then it goes on and on and on with long quotations on the Fattash, from the Fattash concerning the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobo. And since I've been quite short, I think I can also kind of introduce another doc document that I did not put in my slides. That is the only response that I ever found to the claims of the Tariq al-Fattash. And I just do it because it's going to be the topic. I mean, this character is going to be the topic of the next presentation. Abdul Qadr Dantafa, a scholar related to the Sokoto uh, court, would write a very harsh response to this very document by basically saying, uh, my brother, no, all your claims are completely nonsense. And the very way in which uh, the claims uh, are disputed is not because uh, it's unlikely, not because there is anything wrong in the, in the hadith, uh, but simply because the quotations from a suyuti that are the strongest part of the argument of the Fatash are wrong. So Abdul Qadir Dantafa dismisses this document on the basis of issues related to wrong quotations that I find extremely fascinating. And the authority of Ahmed Lobo is also extended to the very body of his subjects because one of the pieces that I have not in included in the presentation today, I mean it's plenty of time, is about uh, the uh, ownership of the caliph uh, over several qabail, uh, so in quotes and quotes and quotes, tribes from West Africa, usually endogamous groups, uh, that were considered as property of the king. And again, to go back uh, in the field, how were these things uh, received? First of all, we have several fatwas uh, that use the tarikh al-fatash, so historical text, uh, as a juridical precedent uh, to justify enslavement uh, of groups of people that I also find uh, an extremely interesting and fascinating uh, topic. And the German explorer Heinrich Barth actually, actually found on the eastern part of the Niger Bend uh, entire groups of people uh, running away from the areas controlled by Ahmed Lobo because they have been reduced into slaves. So this was something that was actually happening on the ground. So basically concluding, the Tariq al-Fattash is not a 16th or 17th century chronicle uh, as people have always uh, believed. Its author was, is not Mahmoud Kati, but not even Ibn al-Muqtar, as Nehemiah Lepzion advanced in a seminar, articles. 
The Tarikh al-Fattash is an apocryphal chronicle written in the 19th century by Noah ibn Tahir by modifying the pre-existing Tarikh ibn al-Muqtar and ascribing this text to Mahmoud Kafi. And in this, we go back to the issue of intertextuality that we discussed this morning with Terem, Professor Terem, because this reshaping of the text creates a new text. So to intertextuality, there is a strong relationship with issues of authorship. So it is not the percentage of text between the Fatash and the Tariq ibn al-Muqtar that is different. Most of the time, they are the same. But it's the overall preconceived plan that transforms uh, by changing pieces uh, the Tariq ibn al-Muqtar into the Tariq al-Fatash. So the Tariq ibn al-Muqtar, uh, the Tariq al-Fatash, as I imagine it, uh, this apocryphal 19th century chronicle, uh, reconstructs the legitimacy of Ahmed Lobo in three different levels. As the inheritor of Askia Muhammad, uh, as a legitimate temporal ruler of West Africa. As the 12th caliph mentioned by the prophet in a very famous hadith, and as the mujaddid al-din, the renewer of the faith. This is why, so far, the title of my upcoming book is Sultan, Caliph and Renewer of the Faith. Ahmad Lobo, the Tariq al-Fattash, and the making of an Islamic state in 19th century West Africa. Thank you very much. So next, uh, Noah Solomon will uh, speak. Well, we go from one Noah to another Noah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not Ben Tahir, though. Uh, one moment. Well, well, I'm getting this up on the screen. I, I really uh, would like to thank uh, both Professor Khan and uh, Matthew for organizing what's so far been uh, such a wonderful conference. It's really uh, great to be here with all of you and to hear such uh, exciting work on these topics. Um, it would come as no surprise to anyone in this room to say that the general and I think sloppy juxtaposition made between people in historical studies and those in the social sciences is that the former rely on texts and the philological sciences to produce meaning, will the latter make use of people to do the same? Like most stereotypes, however, this one too needs serious revising, both in terms of the object of our respective studies and in regard to the epistemological foundations of our respective quests for knowledge about Islamic Africa, its presence, and its pasts. In the case of the former, the object of our studies, of course, historians range from intellectual to social history and much in between, and social scientists uh, and cultural theorists have had a long-standing interest in the textual, culture, in textual cultures and reading publics, inspired in great part by the work of scholars in literary studies like Walter Ong and Marshall McLuhan, and working through to more contemporary figures from Benedict Anderson to Brinkley Messick. As for the latter, the epistemological foundations of our quest for knowledge any trover of the archives knows only too well the way in which social norms and political circumstances intervene between the text and scholars' access to it, from what people choose to preserve and copy and put in libraries and archives to the often liberal evidence for it in Quran and Sunnah, but it is in fact a process that the Muslim attains through successive ritual acts with the goal of purification of the self. He writes in the next quote that you have uh, behind me, you advance every day a degree on the stairs of Tawheed. And in doing so, you add to your concept of Tawheed new aspects. 
It will not take an insignificant amount of time for you to become, with the might of God and his good fortune and his praise, someone who truly embraces Tawheed. For each day, you increase your religion. The evidence for Tawheed is plenty in the Quran. If attaining that knowledge was merely like the work of the textual archaeologist, as one scholar of Salafism has described their hermeneutics, it wouldn't take much digging to find these artifacts. Yet Abdurrahman ibn Khalik sees the grasping of Tawheed to require much more work than mere cognitive assent. A progressive process of moral cleansing, which seems to be a daily and never-ending struggle, is necessary in order to truly understand this primary element of Salafi Aqidah. Despite the Salafis portrayed everywhere as scripturalists par excellence, it appears here in Abdurrahman Abdul Khalik's text that the texts are, are not just not enough, but entirely inert, without a process of ethical training that is generally completely left out in discussions of Salafism. How do Salafi texts move from inert connections of ink and paper to attain meaning then? What are the intersubjective ways Salafi texts come to take on force within the communities in which they circulate? What does it mean to read a text within Salafism given that practices of private reading jostle alongside recitation, kirah, and even, as I mentioned at the outset of this presentation, incantation, rukya? What is the force of the reading context in which the text is encountered? Ansara Sunnah has no more central of a location for engagement with text than its multiple and formal and open to the public lessons it holds in its central mosque complex in Khartoum's suburb of Sajana. One lesson circle that I have attended frequently over the years is the Sira lesson run by one of the leaders of Ansara Sunnah, Sheikh Kamal Omar Bilal. The lesson happens each Saturday for a little over an hour in the space uh, between Al-Maghrib and Al-Isha prayers and consists of reading the well-known modern abridged Sira text, Arahik al-Makhtum, by the Indian scholar Safiya Rahman Mubarak Puri. Learning of this lesson circle while talking to the Sheikh, I, the ever-eager student, went down to the bookstore and got myself a copy, ready to study the text with the Sheikh. Yet when I got to the lesson, I was the only student with the text in hand. All other students sat on the floor listening along. My first and rather silly uh, reaction amounted to some sort of economic analysis. Perhaps the purchase of the text was prohibitively expensive. What I came to realize, though, was something rather different. Reading of the text took up roughly 10 to 20 minutes of the one hour and 15 minute session. And the commentary on the text and what it might mean for a modern Sudanese person took up the rest of the time. Getting through maybe only four pages of the text in each sitting, it would take nearly two years to read through the whole sira, even in this highly abridged version. For those of you who have seen this one, it's not very long. The text was serving here less as a narrative to be read, for of course most adult Sudanese would know the uh, details of the sira, then as a series of notes that jogged the memory of the teacher whose interest extended beyond explication of the text alone, a mnemonic device of sorts. Instead, the focus of the lesson circle was how the spirit of the seder could be lived. The text served as a guide and grounding for sure, but only came into life in conversation with the lives of the Sudanese men it addressed on those Saturday evenings. Here the text was certainly present, but only as a first step in a process which 
in which attaining the correct relationship to the text, learning how to take the text seriously, was an intermediate goal, and then understanding what the text might mean for the Muslim today was the end goal. Students came not merely to hear the text, which of course they could read on their own, the book was in fact inexpensive, downloadable on the internet, etc. Nor did they come, I think, to hear Kamau's interpretation of it, though this was important too. Rather, they came for the commentarial apparatus that surrounded the text, the moral lessons that the Sheikh expounded for how to live a good life on the basis of the ultimate good life, that of the Prophet. Far from a scripturalism in which the text would supplant human authority, as is often argued about the Salafis and the Islamic revival in general, it was the human reader, Sheikh Kamal, who realized the text's potential as something with a message and force on 21st century life. Here it seems clear that textual authority does not come at the expense of human authority as the scripturalism thesis assumes from Geertz really until today, but rather only emerges through it. Lesson circles like these do not peter out with the mass production of text and the increase in education. Five minutes, thanks. Rather, it becomes ever more important it becomes an ever more important place to make meaning anew out of these texts, made possible by human authority rather than supplanting it. Such cultures of reading are not unique to Islam. In his now classic edited volume, The Ethnography of Reading, Jonathan Boyern writes of the intersubjectivism of the reading process of a yeshiva class of which he is a part. I'm quoting here, the voices the voices in, sorry, the voices in the text proper and around the voices of the commentary, the text, are mutually dependent and coexistent. Without the text, we who constitute the class would have no basis for dialogue among ourselves. However, without us, the rabbis and scribe words would remain only potential, end quote. If we are to extend such a recognition to the Salafi lesson circles I have described, I think we should as I, as I think we should, we are forced to destabilize the notion forwarded both by Salafis and by those who study them alike that for Salafis, tradition is a fixed body of work that they are able to resuscitate, dusting it off and presenting it unscathed <coughs> to the present. Rather, tradition here is the continuing elaboration of the text through determining its center and what that means to our present circumstances. The text here is a partner in dialogue rather than an object to be displayed in some sort of fiqh museum. To conclude, in this paper I've made two arguments about Salafi engagements with texts. One, that knowledge acquisition among Salafis is often understood to be a mechanical process of searching for proof texts, what Salafis themselves call istidlal, cannot be understood outside of Salafi ritual and ethical practice, which Salafis themselves and crucially, not just the social scientists, see as a necessary prerequisite to any acquisition of knowledge or to its proper use. Salafi pedagogy pays as much attention to the correct formation of the learning subject as to the knowledge itself, to the mad'u'a, the recipient of da'wah, as to the da'i, the propagator. In other words, Salafi writings on knowledge transmission pay attention to the heart as much as they do to the mind, to ethics as much as they do to reason. This former category has gone almost entirely unstudied in analyses of contemporary Salafi movements, where their proponents are understood to be primarily archaeologists of meaning, upholding the text at the expense of human authority. 
The second point I wanted to make is that the relationship between text and Salafi knowledge is poorly understood, given the literalist manner in which scholars of Salafism understand Salafi claims about scriptural authority. Attention to textual practices, that is, the means by which texts are read, recited, circulated, purposed, and repurposed, reveals that texts are mediated by a whole host of non-textual knowledges within Salafi practice, and that those texts are therefore not understandable without an understanding of how those procedures work. If this is true, then historians and social scientists of the Islamic Africa who work on texts indeed have a lot to talk about. And it's my hope that four all like these spark further conversations. Thanks. Our next speaker is Oludamini Ogunayike. Thank you very much. I'm going to load my presentation now. And as I do so, I wanted to follow suit and how do I do this? And um, uh, thank Professor Khan uh, and Matthew profusely for organizing this and bringing me back to my alma mater and getting together so many uh, great minds and great projects in one place. It's a real joy to be here. Uh, my presentation is entitled Philosophical Sufism in the Sokoto Caliphate. Uh, sorry, the, the life and, sorry, let me backtrack here. The life and works of uh, Sheikh Dantafa, uh, as um, Moro uh, told you, uh, this figure is an uh, early scholar of the Sokoto uh, Caliphate, um, and I think he's very important for a number of reasons, uh, which we'll get into. I wanted to also begin with special thanks to Mohammed Sharif of the Sankore Institute, for making these works uh, available. He's worked for years and years and years, a kind of independent scholar who's now based in Mali, worked for years and years and years digitizing and collecting manuscripts from the Sokoto Caliphate and putting them up on his website so I can sit in my bedroom and read and translate them without having to go to archival collections. Uh, but I may have to do that later to track down a few more works. All right, so the um, study of uh, the intellectual traditions in Sub-Saharan Africa have been deeply influenced by uh, two theses. The first thesis is one of uh, general and intellectual decline. Now it's broadly been discredited or argued against in the field of Islamic studies, but it still has a lot of weight and pull and, and influence. The thesis of intellectual decline is that from the grand golden age where you have these lofty and daring metaphysical thinkers, Fakhreddin Razi, Ghazali, Ibn Arabi, Sohawardi, uh, people like this, Ibn Rushd, uh, that was the golden age and everything kind of declined into people merely uh, repeating things and being more conservative and uh, frankly not as interesting or intellectually sophisticated. Uh, characteristic of this thesis was the notion that Ibn Rushd was the last Islamic philosopher, uh, a notion that was so widespread in the early European literature in the 20th century that even uh, many Arab scholars adopted it themselves. Um, and that's why you have conferences on Ibn Rushd and everybody loves Ibn Rushd because he was the last great philosopher that the Arabs supposedly had. More recently, this has been updated uh, to say, okay, maybe Ibn Rushd or sometimes extended to Ibn Khaldun uh, was the last philosopher uh, of the Islamic West. Now, I should say here by what I mean by philosophy is not um, uh, interesting into what, what we call philosophy here in, in, in the department at Harvard, but specifically the discipline of falsafa, which is uh, Greek, uh, then taken up by Avicenna in particular, 
our Aristotelian um, philosophy. So there are many disciplines that continue to thrive in the Islamic West, as relatively uncontroversially logic, certain branches of Kalam, and Sufism, theology and Sufism, whose arguments would be considered philosophical by uh, almost anyone today, but they're not part of the discipline called falsafa. Uh, so specify, uh, want to specify that. Um, so this thesis is still around that Ibn Rushd Ibn Khaldun was kind of the last main exponent of falsafa in the Islamic West. The tradition continued in the Islamic East, especially in Iran, but kind of died out everywhere else. Um, then the, another corollary of this thesis of intellectual decline is that philosophical Sufism of people like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Sabain, Al-Harali, um, and, and other scholars who combined uh, mystical experience with uh, very sophisticated uh, rational proofs and argumentation um, gave way to a more pietistic, magical, and political Sufism from the 15th century onward. Um, again, this was a thesis that was widespread for the whole Islamic world, and then as people became more aware of uh, traditions in Iran and uh, Syria and other places, and the Ottoman world was still limited to uh, the North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. So there's still a kind of thesis that this philosophical Sufism somewhat died out in the Islamic West, migrated east as a number of these scholars in the 13th century, like all of these scholars I mentioned, Ibn Arabi, Ibn Sabayn, Harali, they all moved from Andalusia to Egypt and and Syria, uh, that with them, the tradition went east and never came back to the west. Uh, coupled with, so that's the thesis of intellectual decline. The other thesis is that of Islam Noir, which most of you here are very uh, familiar with, but I'll reiterate it, is that uh, Africans um, racially and culturally are essentially predisposed towards magical, mystical uh, forms of religion whereas Arabs and other white groups, or, uh, ethnic groups, are more predisposed to rational, uh, textual, and intellectual forms of uh, re uh, religious practice and, and life. And so that Islam in Africa, uh, amongst black Africans especially, is naturally syncretic and magical and, and mystical and not intellectual uh, and, and, and rational. So these two theses have, uh, although um, you'd be hard-pressed to find a scholar, especially a scholar of Islam in Africa today, that would agree uh, with, with them in their entirety, uh, has structured uh, the way in which a lot of research in our field has been done. So for example, scholars of Islamic intellectual history in general, especially scholars of philosophical Sufism or philosophy, tend to ignore Sub-Saharan Africa completely. Um, whereas scholars of Islam in Africa tend to neglect the philosophical dimensions of the works of Sub-Saharan African scholars, focusing instead on their historical, political, or legal writings, and what these can tell us about their social historical context, not just for the sake of the ideas themselves. Now, uh, the case why I find Sheikh Dantafa so interesting is he completely bucks this trend. Okay, so first, a little bit about Sheikh Dantafa. He was born to Malam Tafa, who was one of Sheikh Uthman Danfodil, the leader of the, the Jihad, Sokoto Jihad, and founder of the Sokoto Caliphate, to one of his right-hand men, Malam Tafa, um, and Khadija, who was the eldest daughter of Uthman Danfodil. And he was born right on the eve of the Hijra, Uthman Danfodil's Hijra, from Degel. In fact, one account says that Uthman Danfodil actually delayed the Hijra that began the Jihad of the Sokoto Caliphate to allow his daughter to give birth to Dantafa. So he kind of is coextensive with He's the, literally the son of the Sokoto Caliphate. He was born when the Sokoto Caliphate was born, the very day. 
he began his spiritual training under his maternal uncle, Muhammad Sanbu, who was another son of Uthman Danfodio, famed for his asceticism and spiritual prowess. It said that Uthman Danfodio would come to his son, Muhammad Sanbu, before battles to ask for his du'as for victory. Um, so he began his spiritual training with Muhammad Sambu at the age of 15. Uh, he was done, achieved uh, sh uh, the status of a sheikh at age 18, and then was instructed to complete further study in the outward sciences. Uh, he studied a wide array of uh, disciplines, logic, mathematics, poetry, medicine, natural and occult sciences, grammar, jurisprudence, hadith, theology, um, and many more uh, disciplines with his father, uh, Muhammad Bello, and other uh, famous scholars of the Sokoto Caliphate of the period. He was put in charge of his father's school in Salome, which is a few kilometers from Sokoto, uh, upon his father's death when he was about 40 years old. And then 20 years later, he died at 16 and was buried behind the school. Heinrich Barth, who was mentioned before, uh, met him in 1853 and described him as the most learned of the present generations of the inhabitants of Sokoto, on whose stores of knowledge I drew eagerly. And he has a quote here, um, that actually may be somewhat related to this uh, Tariq al-Fatash uh, question. Uh, Barth says, he made the acquaintance of Abdul Qadir Dantafa, paid uh, me a visit in the evening, and furnished me immediately with some positive data regard to the history of the dynasty of the Askia, the ruler of Songhai, which he had perfectly in his head, and which were of the greatest importance in giving me insight into the historical relation of the Western countries and their regions with that of the central Negro land. It's from Barth's Travels and Discoveries. So he was known and famous, he's been known to uh, Western literature since the 19th century, but there really haven't been any uh, substantial studies on him other than one uh, article and thesis by Nigerian scholar Ahmed Kani. Um, okay, so Dan Tafa's works. He uh, authored a series of elegies and biographies of his uh, teachers and um, uh, family members and other prominent scholars of the early Sokoto Caliphate. He's most famous for his historical works, which are histories of the Sokoto Caliphate, um, Raudat, uh, 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 what's it, al Sudan and Raudat al Afkar, which are cited in a number of uh, different sources um, about the Sokoto Caliphate. Murray Last takes a lot of his uh, work on the Sokoto Caliphate from these two sources of, of his. He wrote a number of legal works, including a very popular one on differences of opinion between uh, Sheikh Uthman Danfodio and his brother, Abdullahi Danfodio, over certain issues. Um, he wrote a number of works on the natural and occult sciences, and they weren't really separate for him. The, the work of physics, uh, so natural philosophy, as widely considered, included both what we would call today physics and medicine, and as well uh, these occult sciences, the esoteric properties of plants, minerals, um, talismans, and things like that. Interestingly, he seems to have written some works of philosophy. By philosophy, I mean falsafa, and he sometimes uses the term hikmah for this, and we'll get into uh, the, that, that distinction later. He wrote some works of practical Sufism, um, how you actually do Sufi things, and then some works of theoretical Sufism and theology, works about metaphysics, about cosmology, uh, that would engage in these kind of uh, very sophisticated philosophical arguments for certain positions on metaphysical issues. Um, now, this is my classification of his works. Looking at uh, the Wick's ALA and the list of all his works, plus the list of works uh, collected by Muhammad Sharif and the Sankori Institute, this is how I roughly divide uh, up his works. Dantafa, however, categorizes his works in a different way, which can be seen in this remarkable poem uh, that he wrote towards the end of his life called Shukr al-Wahib. And he said he wrote this poem uh, to give thanks to God 
for the many sciences which he had been blessed to learn, master, uh, receive. Um, and this is the way he categorized me, that's the sixth part. It's a poem of about 67, 66 lines, and begins with, I begin in the name of the creator of the lights, in the veil of the hearts and insights. Gives you, that's, he always writes kind of like this. Um, the first category of sciences and knowledge that he talks about are the sciences of Sharia. Included in these are linguistic sciences, jurisprudence, fiqh, theology, kalam, sunnah, uh, tafsir, Quranic interpretation, or hermeneutics, duraya, general kind of transmitted learning, and the Sufism of ethics, tasawwuf uh, al-takhaluk, um, ethical formation, character purification. And he said these he acquired by transmission, memorization, diligence, and study. The second class of sciences or knowledge that he acquired, uh, he calls the science, sciences of the ancients, ulum al which include medicine, and these are sciences that have their origins in pre-Islamic uh, civilizations, generally the Greek, Indian. Um, medicine, arithmetic, logic, astronomy and astrology, physics, magic squares, letters, and various types of divination, khataramal, these tables, uh, ziyaraj, um, and other things. And he says he required these by transmission, um, and some by independent study. Uh, the next is what uh, we call the science of the realities, ulum al which includes this, uh, the science of the manifestation of divine names and qualities, the mother of the book, spirits, the realm of the malakut, which is this kind of uh, spiritual realm, but it's still formal, the realm of the jabarut above that, which is super formal spiritual realm. And he said he acquired these sciences through realization, tahqiq, and elevation, taraki. Uh, then we have this, what he calls the sciences of the saints, ulum al-awliya, which he says characterizes the knowledge of the mysteries of the Sufi path, as he calls it. The experiences of uh, actually walking on the Sufi path. Jav, Fana, Annihilation. Then he has these symbolic names, the white pearl, the noon, the tablet, and the pen, the low tree. And he says these are acquired through Suluk, actually traveling on the Sufi path, and Jav, experiencing that divine attraction which is, uh, is supposed to accompany uh, traveling on the, on, on the spiritual path. Then, interestingly, the fifth science, so the science of mysteries, asrar, from outside of the Sufi path. So you have mysteries, um, knowledge of spiritual uh, things and secrets, but which come from outside of the Sufi path. So this indicates that he's using the term tasawuf in a much more spe specific way than is often uh, generally used in, in other uh, authors, especially in contemporary academic parlance. So these are really even more mysterious, they have names like the living water of the spring of Khidr, the Haruf al-Muqata'at, the famous letters at the beginning of some of the surahs of, of the Qur'an, the letters of the greatest name of God, and these he said he received by divine bestowal. Then even more uh, esoteric, if I can use that uh, category, that term, he calls what he calls the sciences of the greatest unveiling, uh, which he said none but him uh, and perhaps his teacher have ever even dreamed to acquire, and no one will reveal them except for the seal of Muhammadan sanctity, a term that's very common coming from Ibn Arabi's hagiology, theory of sainthood, or who he identifies with the Mahdi. This is important because different Sufi groups identify, usually their founders, the, the Tijani identify the seal of Muhammadan sanctity with Ahmed Tijani, Qadiris have their own various different Shadli authors have claimed this title, but he identifies it with the Mahdi. And he attained these sciences, which is, uh, again, have these elusive names, manifestation of night and the day, sciences of the throne. Uh, he declares, and he said he required these through uh, true dreams during sleep without any effort or difficulty. So these are his, this is how he divides up 
These are the, the ways in which he categorizes the knowledge that he acquired, as well as the means of acquiring them. So this is a very useful uh, document. I'm still trying to track down some of the references to these very mysterious uh, living water of Khidr Spring. Some of the other ones from the Sufi ones uh, come from standard Sufi terminology and they're easier to explain. Um, but uh, if anyone wants to take a look at this document, I, I would be very grateful of any help tracking down some of these uh, uh, curious names. Another important work for understanding uh, Sheikh Nantafa's own understanding of his learning and his approach to it is uh, a work he wrote um, a little bit before uh, the, the previous poem we discussed. This work is called Uhud wa Mawathik. It's oaths and vows that he took. And it's a collection of oaths and vows he said he took at the hand of the greatest namus, which could be the greatest angel or could be the prophet, um, and uh, which he claims are part of the Mohammedan inheritance. And he wrote them down uh, and to encourage others to follow him in, in, in taking these oaths. And it begins with a really touching, very nice oath. So I've taken upon myself an oath to spread the wing of mercy to all things in creation, to view them with the same eye which the real viewed them when he desired to create them. I desire good and sympathy for them, to extend affection and kindness to all of them, regardless of their believers, disbelievers, righteous, sinful, human gen, animals, plants, stones, or clods of mud. And every day, three times, I invoke, O oh God, be merciful to the whole of your creation and suffice them where they are incapable. Say this um, and attend by this oath with the duty of holding back the law from them the consequences of the law, to the best of my ability. So it begins with this very gentle, uh, nice oath. So this oaths are a series of ethical oaths, and but some of them relate to his scholarship. This is what was the one that was most interesting to me. He said, I've taken an oath and covenant not to call anyone from the people to what I've acquired from falsifa, uses the term falsifa here, philosophy, and the sciences of the ancients, even though I took these sciences in a sound manner, rejecting the erroneous perspectives within them. Along with that, I will not teach these sciences to anyone in order that they may not be led astray, and errors will thus revert back to me. On the contrary, I'll call them to knowledge, ma'rifa, Quran, surah, sunnah, jurisprudence, and Sufism. So he says, I know falsafa, I've studied it, I know it, but I'm not going to teach it to anyone because it's dangerous, they could go astray. Um, I'll talk at, later about what to make of this oath, because he wrote versified works on falsafa, which means he might have, he probably taught them. So maybe he wrote this after, this oath after he taught it. I don't know. It's an interesting, uh, uh, interesting mystery. Uh, then he also said, speaking more about what we now call the occult sciences, have taken an oath not to utilize anything from the sciences of differentiation, spells, incantations, charms, and the subjugation of jinn for either advantage or protection. On the contrary, I've abandoned these altogether, even though I acquired and mastered the essentials of these sciences. So again, I know how to do this, but I'm not going to do it. And then, uh, relatedly, and he makes a differentiation between these two things, which in today's academy would just be lumped together into one category of magic. Uh, I've taken an oath and covenant in line with the above vow not to implement anything from the science of letters and names, in mahruf wal asma, in a way which could cause harm to the Muslims. However, when it can bring benefit to me, I will use it on the condition of it being appropriate for attracting benefit or defense. So he draws a distinction between in mahruf, which often in... Um, science of letters and magical use um, and divine names and these uh, spells, subjugation of jinn and, and other things. The former he won't do at all. The other he won't do to harm any Muslims, but he'll do it if it's appropriate. Uh, and then finally, this is an interesting one, it's rather long, but he says, I've taken an oath to 
construct my doctrine upon the verses of the Quran and not upon rational proofs or theological opinions. In this position, I'm a muqallid, a follower, and the source of my following is the infallible Quran. And then uh, he says, if I were asked, for example, for the evidence of the temporal creation of the cosmos, this is a huge debate in Islamic theology and philosophy. The philosophers came down generally, not, not always on the side of the eternity of the cosmos, and the Islamic theologians came down on the side, generally, on the side of the huduth, the temporal creation of, of, of the cosmos, the universe. He said, I wouldn't give this argument uh, it would take a while to explain what this argument. The temporal creation of the requisite accident, accidents is due to the temporal creation of the essential identities. This is a term from Ibn Arabi. This is an argument from Ibn Arabi's uh, school. It would take a while to kind of unpack it. Uh, so it's, uh, but I tried to do so in my paper, if you're interested. Uh, nor would I say uh, some other than this from amongst theological perspectives. So I wouldn't try to prove it rationally. Rather, I would say God says God is the creator of everything, for there's no evidence for me other than that. Therefore, I would explain this evidence from God having absolute certainty in the reality of the Qur'an and no other, since I've seen that rational evidence in no way leads to direct marifa, direct knowledge of God. The evidences of reason are limited to establishing the existence of an incomprehensible deity and that its attributes are such and such. But the evidence of reason cannot fathom in any way its essential reality. As for the Qur'an emerged from the presence of God by means of Jibreel to his messenger, that's a matter which is decisive, so realize that. So he gives, it, it, um, again, this is an argument from the uh, Akbari, the Ibn Arabian tradition, and the Ghazali as well says, if you just have reason, you'll know that there's a God up there who created everything, but you have no idea what he's like. You need something more than reason for that. Um, but so this, this, again, is a kind of interesting thing. So he's aware of these rational proofs. He can do them, but he says, I'm not going to use them. All right. So... Let me then go into uh, just briefly outlining the works uh, which we do have. Most of these I've been able to see, and there are a few of them whose manuscripts I'm still trying to track down. So it's works of falsafa. Um, these seem to be works of Avicenna and falsafa. Manzuma fil Hikmah, it's an introductory poem on philosophy. Futuhat Rabbaniya, which Ahmed, I'm still looking for this work, but Ahmed Khani describes it as a refutation of the naturalist and materialist position on the independence of the world. Uh, and Kuliyat al-Alama Sitta, which is this interesting short poem. It's kind of a Neo-Pythagorean poem. Oh no, sorry, this, um, that's a different one. Kuliyat al-Alama Sitta explains various universals, their origin and their return, and has an extended discussion of Hula, uh, prime matter. Um, this poem, Nazim al-Kawanina Wujud, is a poem that has this kind of um, uh, Pythagorean structure. You start with the one, and then the two, and then three, four, seven, and 12, and how the whole universe comes from these, uh, the manifestation of these numbers. Nasab al-Majudat, another similar poem on uh, cosmology. Kashf al-Kunuz with Hilla Rumuz. This one could be considered a work of philosophy and, or the occult sciences, depending on how you look at it. It's a work explaining the cosmological correspondences of uh, certain talismans. Um, it's, so it's kind of both a work of natural philosophy and of uh, talismanic uh, science. And we have works of philosophical Sufism. The Manzum al-Istilahat al-Sufiyah, which he wrote when he was 17 years old. It's a poem which explains the te difficult technical vocabulary in uh, Abdul Karim Jili's magnum opus in San al-Kamil, which is a very amazing uh, critical engagement with Ibn Arabi's work. And there really hasn't been a very, uh, there have been a few doctoral dissertations, but there hasn't been a really good study of this work of Jili's. But it seems to have been very important in spreading the ideas of Ibn Arabi, uh, not just in North and West Africa, but also 
uh, in Yemen and uh, East Africa and uh, the Indo the Malay world as well. So when he was 17, he wrote a, a poem explaining all of the difficult terminology in this massive work. And and then he wrote this other work where he clarified 13 difficult topics uh, from within Julius and Sanal Kamal. Another work, Hadrat al Hahut wa Wahidiyat al Hahut, work explaining the difference between the Hahut, a level of the essence, and the Lahut, a presence of divinity, different levels of reality in Ibn Arabi's kind of cosmology. And then another work, Maqamat al Anbiya, which I'm still trying to find a copy of, but which he says has to do, which he says was divinely inspired. Uh, not authored, he just divinely received it and has to do with different wisdoms of the prophets. Seems to be something akin to Ibn Arabi's Fusus al-Hikam, um, but I need to get a look at the manuscript to see for sure. Uh, then we have works of practical Sufism in which he describes um, how to progress along the Sufi path. Because time is short, I'll, I'll skip over them. Um, but they also deal with epistemology and issues of the practical Sufi path, so they're not completely uninteresting for uh, uses of... Uh, uh, philosophical study, study of his ideas. Okay, so I'll conclude. From just this brief overview of Dantafa's work, we can see that there existed an Akbari tradition, a tradition of the school of Ibn Arabi in the Sokotul Caliphate from its very founding. Uh, Dantafa says he studied Jili's massive work in Sanul Kamal with his uncle, Muhammad Sanbu, who in turn studied it with Uthman Danfodio. So the question is, who did Danfodio study in Sanul Kamal with uh, now? And it, this, his work seems to suggest that falsafa and hikmah, um, now the term hikmah is kind of uh, ambiguous. It's sometimes used for these practical occult sciences, and sometimes it's used to refer to kind of speculative Avicennan philosophy. But, and he seems to use it both ways in the things I've read. But these, uh, these traditions um, uh, existed in the Sokoto Caliphate. He was taught them. He seems to have taught them himself. Um, but perhaps they existed in a hostile environment given the nature of some of his vows. Um, did the tradition end with Dan Tafa? Did, he, did his students continue to teach this? Is this? These are things that require further research. Um, so in future, I hope to require and translate more of his works of falsafa um, and attempt to track down their sources, what he studied in order to write these works, and the, the possible transmission of them. Thank you very much. And our last speaker is Farah El Sharif. So I think we've reached the midway point of the conference, and I think I speak on behalf of many in the room in saying it's been such a treat to listen to such captivating, original, and very exciting uh, research. Like my head is spinning. There's just so much. Very, very rich um, stuff that came up. So it's a very big honor for me as a lonely PhD student uh, to follow at the heels of such distinguished uh, faculty and scholars, uh, but I'll do my best. So in fact, it's um, very exciting. Um, my paper uh, feels like a confluence of a lot of the themes that have been discussed so far today. Um, I was feeling a little bit hesitant about choosing a small uh, stream uh, instead of taking the whole floodgate of the, of the text at hand, which is Arimah by Sheikh Omar Fouti. Uh, I was hesitant to do so because I felt like it may have been too narrow. But um, in the world of you know, visions and dreams and saints, I think 
things work out uh, better than we expect, uh, in the sense that uh, though this is a mystical text, it touches on um, themes of readapting Maliki law, which was uh, the previous panel on Islamic law touched on, um, many of you touched on in many different forms. So that will be a key theme going forward. And of course, uh, Professor Zachary Wright's uh, paper on visionary knowledge and encounters with the prophets is very much in line uh, with uh, the epistemology that I will discuss in this paper. Um, and so I thank him for expertly fleshing out uh, the world of visions and encounters with the prophets because if you keep this in mind, my paper will be um, much easier to follow through. Uh, so um, to introduce a little bit, Sheikh Al-Hajj Omar bin Saeed Al-Futi, who Professor Khan uh, yesterday spoke about in his keynote, who died in 1864. He was among the most prominent West African figures of the Tariqa Tijaniya Sufi order in the 19th century. More about his military campaigns has been written than his status as a serious alim and spiritual giant. Though thankfully, efforts have begun in, rec uh, in recent years by scholars in the West to remedy this false perception. In fact, Radke writes about the Rimah in 1995 saying it would require a chitik to unpack <laughs> all of its many, many layers. No, I'm no chitik, but um, at least I am uh, taking a very small, humble uh, uh, part of it and try to dissect it uh, in this paper. So the full name is the Kitab Rimah Hizb al-Rahim ala Nuhur Hizb al-Rajim, which would translate to the Book of the Spears of the League of Allah the Merciful against the necks of the League of Satan, the Accursed. So I'll come back to the very tone of this uh, text. Uh, it's very uh, forceful, uh, much like our, the author himself in his character was. And I argue that there is a philosophy behind this sort of violent... Um, you know, description for what he's trying to do in this text. So this text, as Professor Khan yesterday mentioned, is normally written on the margins of um, the, another very seminal Tijani text, that is Ali Harazim's Jawahil Ma'ani. Um, and yes, the Rimah is a Sufi text. But in it, however, Al-Futi discusses a range of topics from fiqh to theology and cites more than 650 direct quotes from over 100 sources. One can say that it offers a whole world view and it is a thorough compendium for belief and worship. I argue that it is in its essence a reformist text, reformist in the sense of islah, that it is meant to rouse the reader from a, from a slumber of complacency and error. Hajj Omar uses the third person throughout the text. His chapters are entitled, informing them that, or warning them this, or tell them that. So it is clearly a text of corrective guidance. And yet, one cannot simply dismiss Al-Futi as a mystic, uh, unconcerned with the law and its relationship to Sufism. Uh, many of uh, the experts here in the room know that in the 18th and 19th centuries in North and West Africa, from Ahmad Zarruq to Ahmad ibn Idris, we find many such debates on the efforts to define the balance between tariqa and sharia, and attempts to define the cohesive idea of a juridical scholastic Sufism that emphasizes the importance of the many uh, branches of fiqh and critiques the certain excesses 
of certain Sufi, Sufi practices. As a product of that time that was rife with such debates, Hajj Umar would add his own view on these matters in Arimah. A key issue in my paper is his own opinion on the issue of following a madhab, which I will focus on for this presentation. In his chapter eight is entitled, Informing them that God Most High did not make it obligatory for anyone to adhere exclusively to a specific madhab of the mujtahideen, and informing them that every imam of this community, may God most high be pleased with them all, has renounced any claim that men must necessarily follow them exclusively in every religious matter, since the imams know that unqualified fidelity is due only to him who is guarded from error, al-ma'asum, the prophet. Um, his negative position on the madahib is by no means novel or shocking for his time, nor is it particularly original. It is actually reminiscent of his contemporary, um, the great mystic Ahmed ibn Idris al-Fasi, died 1837, the great Sufi who was dubbed Muhi al-Sunnah, who crazily enough left Fas and moved to Arabian Peninsula uh, to escape his home community for the excesses he witnessed in their reliance on taqlid in North Africa. And he chose, he elected, to live with the community of Abdul Wahab, uh, the founder of the Wahhabiya movement, despite the Wahhabiya's staunch opposition to Sufism, of course. But both Ibn Idris and Abdul Wahab converged on one key point, and that is their rejection of absolute taqlid of the imams of the four madhabs and the act of following a single madhab. So in the Rimah, it is clear that the same holds true for Hajj Umar, who is also a, prominent, a proponent sorry, of a return to the Quran and Sunnah only, and not to blindly follow adjudication by way of taqlid, and those he calls the imams of ishtihad, of the four legal schools. Um, interestingly, he calls them taqlid a'immat al-ishtihad, and previously in Professor Ismail's um, presentation, he quoted Sherman Jackson, who says, uh, is the ishtihad of the muqallidun. So this is, in, in a sense, the inverse of Sherman Jackson's description. Anyhow, so the emphasis here is that Allah did not obligate anyone to follow a madhab exclusively, not an all-out rejection of the madhahib or the legal canon. The circumstances that arose to this position historically are kind of unclear. Sheikh Tijani was a Maliki, and a good number of his followers are um, and they're spiritual descendants of that um, tradition. Um, it is even likely, I think, that the overarching madhab of Futi himself was Maliki, but it is possible he did not follow it exclusively or to the T. And yet, similar stances by earlier Sufis are seen in different texts, Turuq, and regions. So why did Hajj Umar take this stance? It could be one of the following uh, scenarios. Either A, he witnessed excesses by the followers of some of the madhahib and the followers of the tariqah, or he was influenced by Wahhabi stances on this issue, which is less likely, although possible, since he visited the Hijaz for Hajj uh, during Wahhabi rule. <coughs> but I argue that it's little, uh, little less those factors and more of the following. The tariqah tijaniyah itself elevates this debate on this issue. 
I, or maybe it is a combination of the above factors, but more to do with the latter. And the simple fact that we take for granted or have a simplistic view about the unchallenged obligation of following a madhab for anti-Salafi traditionalist Sunnis today. I argue that Al-Futi's stance against the extremist and blind taqlid of the jurists translates into a call for believers to be more diligent about obtaining ma'rifah, superior knowledge, and thus establishing an intimate connection with the Prophet, the source of the Sunnah, the primary source of Sharia along with the Quran. In fact, the Prophet وسلم, is the living Quran, and therefore he is the spring source of sacred law itself. Now, when a person has an intimate connection with a sacred law, in waking visions or in dreams, then you can understand the agency and the power behind that. But I will come back to that since it's a, it's a contested space. Uh, so in secondary literature on Islamic modernism, and like Professor Solomon challenged you know, these tropes of how we talk about Salafism and Islamic modernism, reform, etc., anti-Madhabism has often been normatively paired with Salafi ideology. Modern and contemporary Sufis, on the other hand, of at least as our contemporaries of the Sunni Ash'ari elite of Damascus and Cairo, they have been among the strongest proponents of following a madhab exclusively, going so far as to say it is, it is this normative Sunni practice that each of you must follow a, follow a madhab. If, um, many of us are familiar with Rahmatullah Sheikh Ramadan Saeed Bouti, the Syrian contemporary sheikh who penned uh, a text that says, akbar um, So it is a very normative accepted trope that it is the, it's the largest innovation not to follow a madhab. And yet, centuries before, you see um, uh, Al-Futi saying, it is a bid'ah to follow a madhab. So this is a very interesting debate that is ongoing, but it's really solidified and died out in the 20th century. So um, Hajj Omar's text, I say, complicates this narrative. Sufis of the 18th century also critiqued the blind prevalence of taqlid, but to the likes of Hajj Omar, a return to the Quran and Sunnah only meant something rather different than from the likes of Abdul Wahhab and his adherents. For Sufis like Hajj Umar, Quran and Sunnah only can in fact be read as not as a restriction, but as an invitation for a more dedicated, sincere, and serious form of wayfaring and worship with regards to the attainment of external legal knowledge as intrinsic to a mystically rigorous journey. In my paper and the title of this presentation, I probe the idea of Sunnah as a perpetual open source, uh, whereby the Prophet's physical death in 1632 for some 18th century mystics like Tijani, Al-Huti, and other adherents of the Tariqa Muhammadiyya did not signify the end of a direct juridical access to the Prophet. There are examples of Tijanis asking the Prophet directly about the validity of weak hadiths, or ask him to verify a form of worship or end the debate on such and such in a vision or in a waking state. Now, this brings about the theme of conceit or this elitism that Professor Wright pointed out to us, that Tijanis are, 
have this reputation of having this sense of esoteric superiority because of this you know, elite access. But um, he is not quite saying here that this is an, um, you know, an old boys club that only we have access. Uh, on the contrary, this world has an etiquette and a secrecy to it. And it is not an open, free for all, sort of open source uh, in the computer geek sense where people go and democrat and democratic digital space where anyone can edit their own at their own discretion. But more, I, I argue, in simply speaking, a source that is just not closed. It is an open source in the sense that it's not closed off. It is a source that can be accessed through hidayah guidance, being chosen, exerting oneself, or otherwise, that the Tijanis believe is not only possible, but it is a promise. And it is the very basis of the Tijani haqiqa, the reality of the Tijaniya. Um, and let me backtrack a little bit. So I argue that the feature of seeing the Prophet yaqazatan la manama, in a waking state, shed its garb of secrecy, of being an elitist, mystical, secret and became a normative feature of 18th and 19th century West and North African Sufism. After all, prophetic access is the basis on which the Tijaniya was founded and continues to be a source of ongoing guidance starting with Ahmed Tijani and subsequent leaders and followers of the Tariqah to this day. So am I saying that Hajj Omar somehow advocates that prophetic access envisions somehow is a legal methodology? Absolutely not. He clearly does not say that, and nowhere in his text does he say that. In fact, as I said, there is an etiquette to these visions, and normally they entail permission from the receiver of the vision to even share this knowledge in public with others. Uh, but it points out to an elevated understanding in the relationship between ma'rifah and the law. In a sense, the Rimah invites for a new reading of Islamic modernism and legal reform, and scholars of this field have long neglected 19th century West Africa as a ripe space for understanding alternative forms of Islamic modernism. While Al-Rimah is almost doctrinal in its language and structure, it predates the simplistic dichotomy of today's polemics, you know, Sufi versus Salafi, as unyieldingly opposed spheres. It complicates this narrative. One can even say that Hajj Omar's critique of excess taqlid offers a point of convergence and dialogue with what became the wide-spanning Wahhabi ideology in the 20th and 21st century. So just like Ibn Idris found a, a place of convergence, though he was a mystic, uh, I argue the same can be true for um, uh, questions of reform with so-called the big bad Salafi that, that Sufis don't talk to or engage, but there can be, in fact, a place of convergence. Uh, I'd like to talk about a specific way in which I probe this idea of um, legal knowledge from mystical experience. Um, similar tropes of Arimah extend to the 21st century. Uh, the great Tijani uh, Sheikh uh, Ibrahim Niyas He's Sheikh al-Islam, Sahib al-Fayda. Um, he himself, like Ahmad Tijani before him, and many in that region, were known Malikis. But they went against certain Maliki practice in preference of the most perfect Muhammadan Sunnah, 
one such issue is the issue of qabd, praying with your hands folded, is one such example. Uh, you would be hard-pressed to find a Maliki in that region before the 40s, or even outside Sheikh Ibrahim Niyas's community, praying like this. Uh, Malikis would pray with their hands to the side, that's called sadl, and the folding them would be called qabd. Uh, and it is said that, um, so Professor Wright actually expounds on this, the genealogy of this whole story in his book, uh, The Living Knowledge, uh, Living Knowledge in West African Islam. Um, and he points us to the fact that Sheikh Ibrahim Niyas's position on the madahib is the following, is that um, one cannot fo uh, follow one of the four imams blindly because this can shield someone from benefiting from a living sheikh, since most people cannot master all four madahib and their rulings. There is even a saying attributed to Sheikh Ibrahim Niyaz, who says, <laughs> We are Malikis, but we are not slaves of Imam Malik. In this sense, uh, Wright, Professor Wright reminds us that the higher goal of the law, according to the Tijaniya, is the knowledge of God whether in the external rituals of worship or spiritual wayfaring. So in this way, we go beyond the dichotomy that law and spirit are not in opposition. Of course, this is true for the Sufis and specifically for the Tijanis of that time. Um, but it offers us a new dimension that adjudicating as close as possible to the Sharia is intrinsically tied to one's spiritual state first and his closeness to the Prophet. For readers of modern Islamic intellectual history of reform, texts like Arimah invite us to dig a little bit deeper into the history of Ijtihad and its many manifestations. Indeed, for Hajj Omar, not all mujtahids are created equal. Certainly, a Wahhabi mujtahid who rejects Sufism is rather unlike a Tijani mujtahid. We see this reality manifested in earlier texts such as the great mystical text Al-Ibriz by Dabagh, who died 1719, which Al-Futi quotes in his Arimah. Please allow me to read this uh, quote because it's very interesting. And know, may Allah guide you to goodness, that the wali who has achieved complete opening knows what is the truth and what is correct, and therefore does not stick to one madhab only. In fact, if all madhabs were finished, he would still be able, able to revive the sharia, and how not when the Prophet himself is not absent from him, even for the blink of an eye, and he is not absent from witnessing Allah, even for a moment. So therefore, he would know the intent of the Prophet and the intent of Allah in the prescribed duties of the Sharia and other matters. Subsequently, if he is like that, i.e. if he has this status, then he has authority over others and not vice versa as he is closer to the truth than the one with no opening. Consequently then, how can it be correct to criticize such a saintly person by saying, oh, he went against this madhab in this issue or that? Completely elementary to people like the Bagh and Futi quibbling over madhab. They're way, way beyond that. End quote, so that wasn't him, that was me. <laughs> Hajj Omar is similarly, similarly dumbfounded in his tone throughout the Rimah. In one section, he even calls people who deny the possibility of seeing the Prophet in a waking state, he says they are ignorant, stupid, envious, accursed seekers. 
He is not beating around the bush with secrecy and apologetics here. It tells us a lot about the type of alim he was, fiery and relentless. The title, going back to the title, of Rimah itself, lances or spears against the devil, tells us that he does not plan on mincing his words. It goes beyond the elementary discussions on law versus spirit. Indeed, to Hajj Omar, such a binary would seem absurd. This goes beyond that. In his text, we can clearly see the larger implications of his Sufi-oriented prescriptions. With the experiential knowledge of God at its epicenter, Arimah points to an elevated epistemology for approaching the sacred law. In other words, Sufis make for better jurists. It is the learned friends of God who are better equipped to adapt legal rulings over the passage of time, negotiate difference and disagreement with ihsan and justice, and most of all, they are able to disseminate more sound knowledge of the Sharia through direct access to the Prophet, a still living embodiment of the Sunnah. Well, imagine being able to verify a hadith that uh, a late, the late Salafi Sheikh uh, Albani in Syria, for example, how he closed the deal on that, and then have a mystic, a Tijani mystic tell him, well, actually, the Prophet told me that it's not quite what you described. I mean, it's powerful. But of course, again, this cannot be made into law or enter the, you know, the legal corpus or canon uh, due to accusations of bid'ah and respect for the 1,400-year-long tradition legal tradition. This is why mystics like Dabbaq and Al-Futi and what they revealed in their text is so potent and contentious. But if we take what they say as a point of convergence rather than a place of contention, when all is done, Hajj Omar's calls for anti-Madhabism, or shall we say beyond Madhabism, is not meant to restrict or obliterate the history of the Islamic legal tradition. Quite the contrary. It is meant to water it with experiential access to the Sunnah Muhammadiyah and enrich it with a floodgate of knowledge from the greatest source, the Prophet himself. Thank you. Let me just make a few comments before I open it up to questions, and we'll have about 15 or 20 minutes for questions to allow something for a biological break between this <laughs> session and the next session. Each of the paper givers rightly thanked the organizers of this conference, Usman Khan and Matthew Steele, for making the conditions possible uh, for everyone coming together. But I want to be the first to thank the four paper presenters for what they've done together and given to us because I believe that what they've done is given us something that is more than the sum of its parts and that there's a larger kind of possibility that is emerging. I also want to say that I think that their papers have been exemplary in the manner in which they've approached their different topics. Once it was the case that a scholar could express both indebtedness to the past and a sense of the awareness of how much we depended on the past by saying that uh, a scholar stood on the shoulders of giants. We still have to say st such a statement, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we live in a time in which we also realize that part of what we inherit is preventing us from doing the things that we see that we need to do. 
In old Irish uh, epic literature, there's a hero named Cúhulín, in which among his many virtues was that he was able to tie his shoes while running. And what we could say is that each of these four uh, scholars in their papers have been tying their shoes while running. <laughs> they're moving us ahead, but they're also fixing something that will in some way make us fall down uh, if we don't attend to it. It's very, very hard to do. And I was just watching the elegance, the uh, gentleness, the sophistication with which each one of them did that. We just say, oh, it's exemplary for everyone, not only in the, in the study of uh, Islam in sub-Saharan Africa or Islamic studies, but generally in the study of everything that humans do and the way that we understand it based on what others have said before us. I just want to draw our attention to something in the title of the panel, Authors, Texts, and Islamic Scholarship. And one of the things that, listening to the papers, what I began to wonder about is, and to notice that each of the paper givers seemed to understand Islamic scholarship in a slightly different way, and some listening to each other and how it might come together. One clear way is that Islamic scholarship is something of a received heritage, a tradition, in which individual authors are embedded in it, building on it, adding to it in the text that they make. But in recent uh, years, in all kinds of fields of scholarship, there's been a turn to go from the study of, say, uh, art history, literary history, to the study of literary cultures, visual cultures. And we could see something similar here, particularly in Noah Solomon when he invoked an idea of a textual culture. We could say also in uh, Mario Nobili that in his own paper, what we see is that it's not enough to just look at a textual culture. We see other kinds of cultures in play and they begin to multiply in front of our eyes. We have a textual culture. We uh, clearly have uh, literary culture. People are writing poetry. We have religious cultures of various kinds of interactions. And we also have political culture. And how we see Islamic scholarship in some sense bringing together and asking us to see these things in interaction with each other is the same, something similar, I think, to the way that we ask when we attend to something like intertextuality. We, we could say, well, what we're seeing here in Islamic scholarship, something like making up a word, interculturality, or something of how these things are coming together. But what the, the turn to looking at Islamic scholarship, not just as an inert uh, received tradition that people then use and build upon, but as something producing something in its own right. But we quickly notice that it produces the two elements in the title of the session, authors and texts. Cultures produce both persons and texts. And when we start to notice that both persons and texts are produced, it changes how we think about uh, authors, which we see them both as agents in their own right and products of something else. And we're asking, what is it that's producing them? And once we acknowledge that, we end up also noticing that the other elements in the title, text, have the same quality. They are, both, they are functioning both as products that people make, and then we get ourselves into some conceptual trouble, uh, at least ontologically, in which we say, oh, texts are agents too. We have all kinds of verbs that were attached to them. Texts intervene, texts do this. And so then we say, yes, they seem to be like people, but how can we think that? But it, it seems that we have to find a way of talking about that it's not just persons producing texts, but texts are producing persons, 
and that they are intervening into the lives of persons, and the people who are engaging them know that, and they're producing texts that can do that. The last thing I want to uh, uh, note that I found myself quite entranced by is the movements of mind of the different uh, paper givers as they in, kind of interacted with the material that they were sharing with us. Let me just quote something that uh, Noah Solomon quoted from Abd al-Karim Saidan, that faith, it is faith that makes the absent as if it were pre uh, present. Uh, and he, he drew our attention that to, uh, in terms of Salafi textual culture, that that faith was a prerequisite to engaging a text. The idea of something that is brought to engaging a text makes the absent as if it were present, I think is the, at the very heart of historical scholarship. There's some attitude that the scholar brings to the text that allows the text to be more than just inert but that's something that is not present in the text begins to become uh, present to the eyes of the scholar. Oftentimes, uh, what we have is, we could say, a probative attitude to the text, like we saw with Mario Nobili, that he's suspicious of what the text says that it is or what people have said about it, that we have to be suspicious of that in order to see the other thing that is present there but appears to us to be absent. And so this probative attitude that the scholars bring uh, ran through all of the papers. And so we could say, oh, for scholars quite often, it is to be probative, to question, to be suspicious, is what makes the absent as if it were present. But we might also say, oh, can we learn from Salafi textual culture and say that there has to be something else analogous to faith, and what it would be for the scholar to have something like faith, in which we say, oh, we want to cultivate that other kind of attitude that all the papers ex exemplify in terms of sharing in, participating in, allowing Salafi textual culture to intervene in the intersubjective networks of our own learning, and to destabilize not only Salafi notions of a text, or sub-Saharan African notions of a text, but to destabilize our own notions of a text. So with that, let me turn it, open it up to questions and people to ask. So please. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, <laughs> thank you very much for your wonderful presentation. I have a question related to Chef Bancano <clears throat> and the idea of uh, hikmah. And in, in the Quran, Allah says, and Could you translate for those? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, Allah sent to those who un, uh, unlearned uh, the, uh, the prophets to teach them uh, the Quran and the Hikmah. Use the word Hikmah in the, the, the Quran, the book uh, which is the Quran and Hikmah. And the scholars, religious scholars, have understood the, the Hikmah as the, the book is very clear in the Quran. The hikmah, they have understood the hikmah as the seerah and the sunnah of the, the, the prophet, the hadith and the sunnah. And uh, how does that reinforce, that definition, reinforce or contradict what you are, uh, Chef Dantava's definition of hikmah? So um, some scholars may define hikmah that way, but um, uh, there's a, a large tradition of defining hikmah in terms of uh, the heritage, kind of uh, Greek heritage 
of philosophy. Hikmah is identical with philosophy in many contexts, uh, many literary contexts. So Ibn Sina and other philosophers were called hakims. Uh, people who were masters of medicine or philosophy were often called hakims. So it depends on the context and the literary discourse in which you're operating. The ones in which Sheikh Dantafa is operating uh, in, this, in these, these works are, um, he will identify as hikmah works of falsafa, uh, works of like Avicenna, Aristotelian philosophy, and works of some occult sciences which uh, seem to have some kind of Greek Neoplatonic uh, origin. So hikmah is being used in a radically different way than uh, the, 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 the sense in which you, you referenced. So same word, different meanings. Please. Uh, thank you all. I uh, enjoy your presentation all. I uh, want to thank Farah. Uh, uh, I like your presentation because uh, that uh, reminds us uh, how the boundary in the Islamic thinking and in the Islamic practice and also in knowledge are very, very uh, uh, strong. And it is a, a call to see this boundary uh, in a way which is not rigid. Mm -hmm. And when you say, for example, that uh, Al-Idrisi, Al-Jomar, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, I will add Salih Fulani, mm -hmm. all of where I would say Salafi, but at the same time Sufi. And the one who was less Salafi uh, would be Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab, because he was Madhab. He was for Madhab. Uh, he was for uh, Madhab, uh, uh, for Ahmad. And the other were not for Madhab. So it's a speculation, but it's a Help us to see yeah. this thing in another way. It's what keeps me up at night. So. <laughs> <laughs> in the same line, uh, I, would, I, I want to suggest if you are looking, uh, you know, the shifting identity between the Sufis and the Salafis, mm. I would suggest also, you know, uh, the Obandi. Interesting, I think, boundary that identities were very important. That you know, there are, I mean, there are people and uh, I know, and I did some, also some research about it. So I, I want to suggest that. Uh, thank, thank, thank you for your research. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I see a lot of hands, but I'm going to demonstrate that I'm a very poor textual scholar, in which I looked at it and I saw that this panel goes from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. And then when I looked at the end of the, program, of the sessions program, it says that we are to end at 3.45 p.m. 
So like the poor scholar that I am, I just read the beginning and drew a conclusion. And then I got to the end, and I had to uh, tie my shoes while running and <laughs> to just say, I think some of us may be needing to run. And I apologize for cutting short ability to ask questions, but just assume that there'll be other times in the break or at dinner tonight for people to ask. But in order for the whole conference to keep on schedule, I ask your indulgence of me and to say that we end now. Okay. okay.